Well, hey, welcome to the Mill Church. Glad you're here. If you are new with us and you have yet to fill out a welcome card, we would appreciate if you did that. Go to themill.church slash welcome. Themill.church slash welcome at any point during the service on your smartphone, or you can fill out a card, a hard copy version at the back. This is the year of 52 stories, where each week a attender at the Mill Church is going to share a story of God's faithfulness. And this morning we have Marsha Conert, willing and ready to share her story. Would you give Marsha a warm welcome this morning? You're welcome. Good morning, God's family. Um, As Pastor Zach said, my name is Marsha. I'm not a regular member here, but I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share my story with you because I think it's something that's worth sharing. To give you a little bit of background, I'm a wife, a mother, and a teacher. My husband and I have four beautiful children. Three are happy, healthy, neurotypical boys, and one is a little girl with the SCN1A gene mutation. Um, How many of you have ever heard of that? I was expecting zero hands. Okay, Um, it's kind of similar to Down syndrome in that it is a gene mutation that leads to, um, in her case, epilepsy and developmental delays. Sometimes it's known as Dravet syndrome. This has been pretty difficult for Lucy throughout her life, especially in her early years. I lost track of how many times the seizures got out of control and we had to call an ambulance. I lost track of how many nights I've spent in intensive care. Um, At one point, our local EMTs recognized our address and knew our child by name. And the nurses at St. Joe's were calling our um, check-ins Lucy's weekly visit. So you know that life wasn't going so well for us at that point in time. Good news, as Lucy has gotten a little bit older, her health has stabilized. I think we've only been admitted twice within the last year, so that's really a blessing. Um, And she is starting to make gains. She turned 11 last month, and she still kind of functions on the level of like a three to five-year-old. But I can see that she's learning and growing, so that's really something to be thankful for as well. I didn't come here, though, to educate you about genetic mutations or to complain about my life. I'm sure you guys all have your own issues and things like that. Um, Lucy embodies something that Pastor Zach said in a pro-life sermon a few years, or a few months ago. Sorry, geez, time is dragging, I guess. Um, You know, he said, it's not the people with special needs who are unhappy. And my daughter really lives that statement. Anyone who's had the joy of meeting my Lucy can tell you she pretty much loves the entire world, maybe with the exception of her brothers, because sibling rivalry is real, even when your IQ is only 49. Um, But she's the first person to give hugs. She loves helping. Um, Last week, I celebrated my birthday, and she went around her school telling everyone, it's my mom's birthday. And she was just excited to celebrate my day, as she had been to celebrate her own day a month earlier, even though she wasn't getting anything out of it. So she's really a special part of our family, just like all of our kids are. But I didn't come here to give you a pro-life speech, and I also didn't come here to advocate on behalf of people with special needs, even though I am happy to do both of those things. Today I came here to tell you the story of one particular night. It was maybe like five or six years back-ish, and I know it was a weekend, um, because once again Lucy was in the hospital, and my husband was taking the night shift there so that I could come home, um, spend some time with our boys, and sleep in my own bed. And um, my very dear friend Karen had taken some time to print off from the internet. She knew we didn't have the internet back then. 
um, any information that she could find for us about seizures or epilepsy or Dravet syndrome in the hopes that something we could find would help our child. So I'm flipping through this massive stack of papers that she had given us. And a lot of it was things I already knew, or it was written like medical genetics jargon, and I'm a teacher, not a geneticist, so some of it was just going through my, over my head. But this one list of um, symptoms and prognoses really made me pause. I was like, yep, 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 we've got that, we've got that, we've got that. And then at the bottom of the list was diminished quality of life. Sorry, just give me a moment. Okay. And then that one phrase, all of the fear. <laughs> the exhaustion of living life on the perpetual edge of a medical emergency just came and it hit me like a punch to the gut. And I was really, really circling the drain emotionally. <sighs> but then, somewhere from the very deepest recesses of my brain, I remembered the words, I came, <laughs> I came that they might have life and have it to the fullest. And in that moment, I didn't know exactly where it was in the Bible, but I knew that Jesus had said it, and I knew that that was enough. So standing alone in that, my kitchen that night, I had to make a decision. Who was I going to listen to and what was I going to believe? On one hand, I was hearing diminished quality of life. And on the other hand, I was hearing have life to the fullest. Now the first statement was written by some doctor sitting at a computer somewhere who had never even met my child. The second statement was written, actually was spoken by the guy who conquered death is currently seated at the right hand of the throne of God and who helped create my child. And when you stop to compare the credentials, the choice is just so obvious. And just like that, I could feel hope return. So why did I ask to speak today? This is obviously not fun for me. Having to relive some of these memories very painful. But I think it's worth it because um, I think in my story there are two things that apply to every single human being who has ever lived. And I hope that's what you're going to take with you today. The first of these two things is this. The closer you stay to God, his word, and his people, the easier it is for him to help you. Now, please understand, I don't think God has any limitations. I think that God can reach his big old God hand down and pull up anyone and anytime, any situation, even people who don't believe in him. It's kind of like this. You, do you guys know the story of Peter walking on the waves out to Jesus? Yeah, remember that for those of you who maybe aren't as familiar with that. So Jesus was walking on the water, and Peter wanted to go out by him. And Peter was doing great until he looked around and he saw the waves, right? And then do you remember what happened? 
I'm a teacher, folks, so I'm going to call on you if I think you're not paying attention. You know, that's one thing about me. Okay, he started to sink, right? So what did Jesus do? Did he say, oh, buddy, looks like you could use some swim lessons. Are you available next week? I can help you with that. No, of course he didn't do that. What would have happened? He'd have sunk. He'd have drowned. Jesus was close. He just reached his hand out and pulled Peter back up. I don't think that Jesus needs to be physically present to still be close to us. When I was basically drowning in my own emotions, all it took to pull me back up was one 2,000-year-old silence. And the reason that worked is because I'm familiar with God's word. And I know when he speaks to me, it's the truth. So grateful for that. So maybe when I say that staying close to him makes it easier for him to help us, I think what I really mean is that when we're close to God's word and we're familiar with it, it's easier for us to notice he's been there helping us all along. The second thing that I think is true of all people who have ever walked the planet is this. At some point in your life, each and every one of us is going to be faced with a decision. The world is going to be telling us one thing, and the Lord is going to be telling us something that is utterly opposite. The world doesn't have the vantage point that God has. He sees things so much bigger than we see. The beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And he promises that all things are going to come together for the good of those who love him. So even when it defies all human logic, trust him. He won't steer you wrong. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk today. Well, thank you, Marcia, very much for sharing your story today and to those of you who will continue to edify and lift up uh, the, the folks who attend the mill with your stories for the rest of this year. That was uh, profound and um, we all benefited this morning. Thank you. Well, if you have your Bible with you today, you can open to the book of Colossians. We're studying a fantastic book. I'm just going to put this down. Um, a fantastic book in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is the author. Uh, he's writing from prison, believe it or not, to a newly planted church, not because he did anything wrong, but because he did everything right. He served the Lord. He told people about Jesus who was God, and they penalized him for it. So today we're going to talk about an issue that all of us face that Marcia alluded to, and it is the issue of suffering. Everybody say, ruh-roh. Suffering. So if your outlook on life uh, is that of Puddle Glum or Eeyore, uh, you're going to love this message. And if your outlook on life um, is that of Winnie the Pooh, then you may wonder why we're even talking about 
uh, suffering. So if you're newer to the mill, uh, this is what we've been doing for, gosh, 13 years almost, is we go through books of the Bible. Our author, Paul, he's in a season of suffering. He's been beaten. They have flogged him, which is a near-to-death beating, a brutal, gory beating. He's been in and out of jail. His family and friends have really uh, distanced themselves from him because he was a Jew, and then he converted and became a Christian. So Paul is unmarried. He doesn't have a sweetheart to lay his head on the pillow next to when he gets home at night and talk about his struggles. He has been harassed by mobs. He has been shipwrecked. He has been snake bitten. He has been homeless. He has been left uh, in exhaustion and tired. And again, now he's behind bars. So how many of you would say, I'm starting to feel a little less Eorish, just by comparison to the Apostle Paul? So, you know, when I think about it, maybe you'd say my suffering pile isn't quite that high. Although it is in my, not periphery, but main view and focal point and feels like everything, I can see how maybe I've even gotten a little off balance in the way that I've perceived my own struggle. And so uh, this suffering man writes this letter to a brand new church, a brand new church in a town called Colossae, where as far as we know, he has not been himself, and he gives them a few things that are necessary for Christian maturity in several verses. We're only going to look at one of them uh, this morning. And the point that I want to take away from verse 24 of chapter 1, which I'll read momentarily, is this. In order to become more like Jesus, you leverage your suffering. You leverage your suffering to become like Jesus. Will you say that with me? You leverage your suffering to become like Jesus. You leverage your suffering to become like Jesus. What do we mean by that? Uh, We could just, uh, instead of talking about what we mean, read verse 24. This is what Paul said. I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, can we just pause and say that that sounds a little odd, does it not, at face value? It sounds a little off-kilter. It sounds maybe a little awkward. Um, If you see somebody praising the Lord in the midst of their suffering, we kind of think, well, that's a weirdo. Like, why would they do that? Like, they're so super spiritual. Um, Why would anybody praise God when bad things happen to them? That's just... That's just unique, you know. I got hit by a car yesterday, but praise God, it was a Toyota Prius and not an F-350. You know, you shut up. You know how we think towards people that, that talk like that sometimes? And what's wrong with you? you? What you're failing to realize is that you got hit by a car. Like, you got, like not everybody's hit by a car. You got hit by a car. That's bad news. This isn't the time to be comparing models, right, of cars. Like you got hit by a car. So this is a time for weeping and gnashing of teeth, us Eeyores 
think when we hear people praising Jesus and think they ought not to be in a particular moment. You shouldn't be so happy. You know, there's something profoundly wrong with you. But the Apostle Paul says, rejoicing in our sufferings ought to be the normative Christian experience. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, is Paul denying that he's suffering? No, he is not. He's not lying like I do often and unintentionally when someone says, how are you doing? And I say, what do I say? Oh, we're good. We're great. You know, we're great. All things considered. Paul doesn't deny it. He says, what does he say? I am suffering. I'm suffering. Notice he's not saying everything's fine. He's not saying everything's great. He's not denying anything. He's saying simply, I'm suffering and I'm rejoicing in the goodness of God. Now, how is it possible, how is it possible with, to rejoice in the goodness of God without becoming a denier of suffering or, and we might say, without becoming a faker? How many of you know some fakers? There's fakers out there, okay? They deny their suffering. Well, look at what he says next. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, that is a relatively complex and meaty theological statement. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. See, what happens when you move through the Bible verse by verse is you end up reading verses like this that we wouldn't pick if we were just talking topically and trying to find some encouraging verses. So now we have to deal with what in the world is Paul talking about here. You know, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. Wow, how many of you would say, I've never seen that verse on a wall somewhere in somebody's home? I haven't either. It's a, frankly, it's a weird verse. It's a weird verse. It's not a very popular one. Um, it was honestly a bit confusing. Well, why is it confusing? Because what was possibly lacking in Christ's afflictions? What was possibly lacking in the work that was completed on the cross of Jesus Christ. Are you saying, Paul, we're thinking when we're reading this, are you saying, Paul, that Jesus didn't suffer enough, so you, his follower, need to suffer more? See, this verse has created some controversy. Even among good pastors and theologians, Christian thinkers over the years, what was Paul talking about? Because again, what it sounds like Paul is saying is Jesus didn't finish the job. 
Jesus didn't finish the job, so I have to. I'm here to do that for you, for the body, for the local church. Well, here's what I, your pastor, will tell you. It does not mean what it sounds like it means. It does not mean that Jesus didn't finish the job. It does not mean that we have to suffer because Christ did not suffer himself enough. Um, How do you know that, Pastor? Well, I know that because of what the scriptures say elsewhere. Do you remember what Jesus said before he breathed his last? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then what did he say uh, before he took his last breath? It is finished. It's done. It's complete. The work on the cross was all that needed to took place. It's not the cross plus something else. It's not the cross plus your grit, your elbow grease. It's just what Jesus did. It's done. It's complete. So all the work of forgiveness and salvation is completed at the cross of Christ. We celebrated that in communion this morning. He died for our our sins. There's nothing we can do to contribute to that work. There's nothing we can add to it. All we do is believe. So that being said, this verse is not entirely clear. What in the world does it mean? Well, the first thing that I would tell you is that a good practice when we're reading the scriptures is to take the verses that are less clear and interpret them through the verses that are more clear. Not to take the verses that are less clear and interpret them through our thoughts and just say what we think they are saying. That's what cults do. They take one-offs and verses that are less clear and they make them their motto And instead of weighing them against the more clearer portions of Scripture before drawing conclusions, they just draw conclusions. So we're to interpret these verses in light of the parts of the Bible that are more clear. When I'm a parent, which is every day, there are times when I get upset with my kids and I let them have it. Anybody say that's me? I do that on occasion in my home. Please raise your hand so I won't feel alone up here this morning. Okay, thank you. So I let them have it from time to time, right? Well, I would hope that my kids would not hear me raise my voice at them and conclude, well, my dad must not love me. I would hope that my kids would interpret what they're hearing, which is less clear, which is less clear, by what they have heard in all of these years of communication from me to them, which is, I love you, which is lots of hugs, which is lots of kisses, which is me telling them I adore them, right? And so it is with how we interpret the Bible. Sometimes we have to interpret the Bible by the rest of the Bible, And elsewhere in the Bible, it's very clear that the work of Jesus was completed on the cross of Calvary and that we don't need to earn anything else. I just said cavalry. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, that's not what happened. Um, Yeah, sorry about that. I'm struggling up here a little bit today. So it is with the Bible. So what 
false teachers and cult leaders again do is they take less clear scriptures and they make that their focal point. They start building up doctrines on them. So the scripture is clear. Jesus plus anything else ruins everything. Jesus plus circumcision. We saw that in the New Testament. No. This is available to the Gentiles too, to the uncircumcised too. You don't have to be circumcised to be born again and inherit heaven. It's not Jesus plus tithing. It's not Jesus plus even baptism, which we're going to enjoy this morning. It's not Jesus plus speaking in tongues. And it's not Jesus plus suffering. It's Jesus alone. Do we believe all those other things are available and happen to the children of God? Yes, we do. Is it necessary for salvation? No, it is not. So what do we do with a text like this? Here's my answer. Are you ready? Um, I don't know. How many of you were expecting more? I, I, don't, I don't know. There are verses in the Bible that I don't know what uh, they mean. And the great commentaries, if you read them, don't really clean them up. To be honest, they further confuse matters. There's just not a lot of clarity. So for now, what I'm going to say about this verse in particular is we can just add it to the other mysteries of the Bible, like the Trinity, like Calvinism versus Arminianism, like the prophecies regarding the end times. Have you noticed there's a lot of people running around out there in 2021 and 22 prophesying about the end of time, relating it to elections, relating it to Putin's Russia being the great army out of the north that Jeremiah mentions that's going to take over everyone and everything. We need to be wise enough, Millers, Mill Church people, to not bite on every piece of prophecy propaganda. Don't do it. Some mysteries need to be left to God. What do we do? We read the Bible. We're faithful in prayer. We serve the Lord. We trust Jesus. How many of you have ever read the Bible and left with this conclusion? Huh? Anybody besides me? Huh? It's completely normative. It's part of the Christian life. Don't feel bad if you read the Bible and you're left with, huh? The Apostle Peter studied under Jesus for three years, for three years, and he read parts of the Bible that he did not understand. Peter did, who sat under Jesus' tutelage. He read a guy named Paul, who we're reading today. We're reading Paul's words. Peter read Paul's words, and Peter basically said, you know, there's this guy named Paul, and I don't fully understand him. So let me read to you what Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. This is what he said. Listen to this closely. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul, I love the guy, he says. I love our brother. Also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. He's a brainiac. Boy, was he smart. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in the letters of Paul that are hard 
to understand, Peter writes, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. What's your point today, Pastor? My point is that if the Apostle Peter didn't understand everything that Paul wrote, it's okay that you and I do not understand everything that Paul wrote. What Peter is saying is, Paul's really smart. Paul's smarter than me. Sometimes he says things I have no idea what he's talking about. But I'm going to smile and I'm going to nod and I'm going to give the impression that I really understand. How many of you have a friend like that? I'm going to be honest, I have a son like that. He talks about the solar system. I have no idea, black holes and swallowing up. Other, I have no idea what he's talking about. I just nod. I just say, yeah, okay. So what's your main point, Pastor? My main point, I'm simply saying the Bible is true and you don't have to understand all of the mysteries of God for it to stay true for you. You say, no, Pastor, but it could mean this because I read the commentary. It could mean this, Pastor, because I have an ESV study Bible, and this is what John Piper said about it. Well, here's what I would say it could. It may mean that. So I would rather be humble enough to know that we will not understand everything that we read. In other words, let's not be shocked that God is smarter than us. Let's not be shocked that God knows some things that we don't know. If you think that by study, you will figure out every answer to every question, every theological question, every practical question about life, I think that speaks more to your pride than it does your intelligence. There are things in the Bible that we read and we say, I don't fully understand, and that's okay. You should not be reluctant to trust the people who say they don't understand everything in the Bible. That's what the Apostle Peter said. You should be reluctant, in my opinion, to trust the people who act like they understand everything in the Bible when God's ways are higher than whose ways? Our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Are there things that God knows that we don't? Well, of course there are. I mean, suffering itself is confusing. God, why did this happen? God, what's going on? What am I supposed to do? Do you recall after Jesus had already risen? He'd already died. He already rose again. He's in heaven, and he comes back down for this little meeting with a guy named Saul, who's been persecuting Christians and authorized the stoning of the early church's first martyr, Stephen. Do you know what Jesus, do you remember what was said? Acts 9.4, what did Jesus say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, did he say Stephen? Did he say the early church? What did Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? 
Now, isn't that an interesting way to say it when Jesus is tucked away at the right hand of Father in heaven and not on earth any longer being persecuted? Paul wasn't persecuting Saul, wasn't persecuting Jesus. Saul was persecuting Christians. But the persecution of Christians on earth was felt by who? Jesus in heaven. What that means, and I'm going to stop here this morning, and we'll keep reading the text next week, is that when you suffer, this is the only conclusion I really want to draw today, Jesus feels it. When you suffer, Jesus feels it. What Marcy said is exactly right. Jesus doesn't need to be right there in close proximity to feel your suffering. How many of you love someone so much that when they're suffering, you're suffering? See, you kind of get it, don't you? Even as a human being. Have you ever experienced that? So Jesus loves you so much that when you're suffering, he's suffering. And here's another thing that we learn from this story. God says to Ananias, who restores Paul's sight in verse 16, that part of Paul's ministry will be to suffer for the name of Jesus. That's prophesied over Saul, turned Paul. So while I hate to even speculate what Paul was referring to about Jesus not suffering enough, it could be that in the book of Colossians, Paul is referencing his own conversion experience that one, when Jesus suffers, we suffer. And two, that suffering is absolutely a normative part of the Christian life. In other words, you cannot avoid suffering. In the Christian life, you just can't. But what you can do is suffer well. What you can do, in, in, instead of running away from Jesus and being angry at Jesus, is run to Jesus and rejoice in your suffering. What you can do is be like Jesus in heaven who empathizes with those who are suffering on earth to be thoughtful to try to put yourself in someone else's shoes. So here's how we're going to end our time together this morning. We're going to pray for those this morning who are suffering. If we understand that Jesus said we will suffer in this life, and if we understand that suffering is part of the human experience, then we can be open about our suffering and honest about our suffering. So here's the details. In a moment, I'm going to ask those of you who are in a season of struggle in a season of suffering, this can be physical, this can be emotional, this can be financial, this can be mental, this can be spiritual. You're in a season of relational, marital. You're in a season of struggle. I'd invite you to stand up to your feet. And then I'm going to ask that the people of God who are around you be like Jesus, who observed other people's suffering on earth and empathized with them and said, it was as if this is an attack on me. And to come around them and pray for them. And then I'm going to ask, before we pray, that the person who has stood first, that you share one to two sentences about what it is you're going through, not launch into a paragraph, not launch into a fate story, okay? Just share a sentence or two, 
and allow everybody time to pray. And if it's super sensitive and you don't want to share, that's okay. Just let them know that you don't want to share, but that you're going through something significant and you'd like prayer. And then we're going to pray in these circles. And then we're going to conclude our service by rejoicing in our suffering, in part by a Christian baptism. Because we were buried with Christ, we suffer with Christ, we die with Christ. And we're raised again with Christ. Both in this life, in terms of our sins being given, and the one to come. And that we're going to be resurrected with Him in glory. So, got what's going on? Everybody clear? Okay. As much as the text was unclear, the messaging is clear, the direction is clear. So if you're suffering this morning, will you just have boldness and just stand to your feet right now? Just have courage. Shannon, will you stand on behalf of our family? We're going through something right now. It's tough. There's no way there's only two people suffering in this room. Anybody else struggling, going through something? Don't uh, let this time pass. Get ministered to. Get prayed for. Great. Anybody else? Give me just another moment. Okay. For those of you who love the Lord and want to empathize with others in their suffering, would you just gather around these people and put a hand on their shoulder, and we're going to pray for them? You just stand up. You're close by somebody who has a need. Gather around them. It's great. doesn't have to be everybody in the room. But if you're close by and you want to pray for someone, go for it. Awesome. All right. Now those of you who are being prayed for, just say to the group what it is that you'd like to be prayed for. If it's sensitive, you can say, I'll pass. Just share a sentence or two. Awesome. Chris, we can put on a little music and we're just going to begin praying. Will you join me in prayer? Begin praying for those in your circle. Heavenly Father, we just pray, Lord, that you would move today. Lord, we know that it's normative, that we're not exceptional. Those of us who are going through something, those of us who are suffering. Lord, we just pray that you would help us. Lord, we pray that you would Bless us that we would feel your peace, Lord, that we would feel your joy. Lord, that we would be able to have hope in this time, in this season. Lord, you are the, the old hymn writers used to call you the bulwark that never faileth. Lord, you are our refuge, our strong tower. Lord, we just trust you, Jesus. Lord, we adore you. We need you. Lord, just make yourself known in our lives. Lord, come to our aid. Lord, we stand in again for those who are in the Ukraine today. Lord, help them, deliver them. These aged elderly people who are trying to find their way over twisted metal and get out of cities. Lord, to safety, be with them. Give them the rest, the water, the food, the care that they need. Lord, let them find hope today. In Jesus' name.
In Jesus' name, Lord, you are our solution. Lord, you are the glory, the lifter of our heads. We need you, Father. We need you today, Lord. Thank you for making yourself known in your sanctuary. Lord, better is one day here than a thousand elsewhere. We need you, Father. We need you, Lord. We trust you, Jesus. Amen.